0: There is something rather delightful for me coming in to join you, feeling just the quality of presence and stillness here in the meditation hall. This retreat's a little different than normal courses that I teach, where one kind of is more in a full-time way going through exactly the same process in many ways as the uh, participants. And here I kind of have the sense of we come in, do our thing and then leave you to it. And so there's a uh, much more evident and obvious sense of the shift that takes place even just over the course of a few days. When one is there through those days, one doesn't necessarily notice how the quality of heart, of mind, of quality of the very space around is affected, is transformed by the, the practice, the engagement that you are involved with here. So I'd just like to honor that in the beginning, appreciate that, feel fortunate to enter into this field. And this morning my intention is to continue with our reflections on the, the foundations of insight practice, the areas, the fields of attention that we've been touching upon we've we've talked about breath and body, we've talked about the feeling tones of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Vedana. And this morning I'd like to speak about the third foundation of mindfulness that the, the Buddha taught about, spoke about, and encouraged, in fact exhorted his followers to to attend to. And this is the, uh, the citta, the mind state, state of mind. To be aware of the condition of our consciousness, to know how it is, is something of real importance. The condition of our heart and mind matters a lot to us. It's what, to a large extent, determines our sense of well-being or otherwise, the condition of that particular field of experience. And so we're asked to really give it attention. And the the word most commonly used to translate this, this foundation or this area of attention is mind. But for myself I find it useful to to take a slightly broader term, the Buddha the language that the Buddha's teaching is recorded in, we have to interpret to some extent in accordance with what feels true for us because we don't know exactly what he meant when he used those words. And heart-mind, for me, feels more inclusive rather than just mind. And this is a a recognized translation from some perspectives for the the word in question. And so the state of our heart-mind, what is this? Understanding perhaps that heart and mind are not so separate, we talk more about the feeling quality of life and the thinking quality of life as being attributed to heart, feeling mind, thinking and there's a certain validity in that distinction, but in terms of the experience that is primarily being pointed to here it it has its its effects and is part of both those fields of experience, both thought and emotional life are affected by the state of mind or the condition of the the heart-mind, as I would describe it. And this morning I'll speak also a little bit about the emotional life and how that relates to this. And uh, we'll touch upon the thinking life, um, I think, soon, more fully. I'm sure you may have touched on it already in your practice, but uh, we'll get there so the state of mind state of heart the the basic framework or condition of the consciousness for myself i find it most usefully understood as being the way that the 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 clear or the transparent nature of our receptivity and responsivity becomes colored or becomes affected that when we talk about Chitta, heart-mind, or mind. We're talking about something that is affected, impacted, touched by experience, by conditions, by circumstances, and something that responds. So it's affected and it responds. This is perhaps the most direct way of recognizing what's being pointed to here when we talk about, or when I talk about heart-mind. And in that, it can be experienced as quite clear, as quite transparent, as not affecting or being affected by, simply touched but not changed. And it can be experienced as having been colored or having been changed in a way by the conditions so that it's no longer clear, it's no longer transparent. And so the the image or the metaphor is a little bit like having colored glasses on. If we put on colored glasses, suddenly everything appears to us of that shade, of that color. And so when a particular mind state arises, when there's a particular condition of consciousness present, everything appears as if it is objectively or ultimately of that flavor when in fact it isn't. It's the mind through which we're experiencing whatever that is that has the flavor. Just as if we were wearing dark glasses, everything might seem dim, although in fact it might be quite light. Or if we were wearing pink-colored spectacles, everything might seem rosy to us, when in fact the colors were as normal. And so again, I'd just like to read the passage that refers to this in the uh, Saripatthana, the Foundations of Mindfulness Teachings of the Buddha. He says, And how, friends, does one abide contemplating mind as mind? Here, one understands mind affected by lust as mind affected by lust, mind unaffected by lust as mind unaffected by lust. Likewise, mind affected by hate and mind affected by delusion. The Buddha tends to repeat the whole phrase every time, the mode of oral teaching. But just recognizing as a primary intention, noticing when the mind is affected by craving or greed, by hatred or anger, or by delusion or clarity, non-delusion noticing how the mind is affected by that when we're angry how things tend to seem threatening or hostile to us or when we're feeling a sense of of craving of wanting the thing we're looking at suddenly seems incredibly attractive or necessary or important and how experiences or objects become imbued apparently imbued by qualities according to the quality of our mind condition of our mind. So the Buddha goes on to say, one understands the contracted mind as the contracted mind. The distracted mind as the distracted mind. The exalted mind as exalted. The unexalted as unexalted. So again, we see there's different conditions. Mind can be contracted. When it feels tight and narrow, there's not much space. Or when it feels exalted, when there's a sense of uplift, of brightness, of of something of nobility in the mind. We might encounter that. We might notice that. Oh, it's like this. Or it's not like this. Noticing the mind, understanding the concentrated mind is concentrated and the unconcentrated mind is unconcentrated. So again, the invitation to notice. Oh, the mind is quite still, quite unreactive, undistracted. And just noticing that. And equally noticing, oh, right now, mind is distracted. This reactivity. Seeing that, not making a judgment, not elevating one above the other, but just, oh, it's like this. It's like this. Understanding the liberated mind as the liberated mind. The unliberated mind as the unliberated mind. So there's these different ways in which we can just recognize the condition of consciousness. And it's almost like we turn towards it with a, with a question, oh, what's the condition now? How is this mind right now? It requires us to some extent to, to disidentify from that experience because we easily identify with it and we believe that the way the world is presenting or what we're seeing or perceiving is somehow objectively true when in fact it's simply a flavor that's being imparted to perception by the condition of consciousness. So this is an important understanding, that the consciousness becomes colored, or flavored, and that affects our perception. Perception is not objective, and therefore needs to be questioned, rather than simply adopted as absolutely how things are. That doesn't mean we negate or deny our perception, but that we just leave a little room for, hmm, what's really going on here? Is it that, everybody's looking really, that everybody really is miserable today? That the food really is bland here at Guy House and the teachings are boring? Is it really the case that the gardens are suddenly quite sort of dead and with no life in them? Or is it that my consciousness is feeling just a little bit low or depressed or miserable today? And that's the condition of the consciousness and everything else looks kind of bland or sad or down. And we might equally consider when it seems that suddenly everything is exciting and the people around us are radiant and they're obviously, you know, just full of bliss, all of them. And likewise the food is remarkably, incredibly sweet and delicious. The teachings are the most extraordinary thing. We might just start to wonder, oh, is this a mind with excitement or delight? And so rather than having to get into arguing with whether or not it's true what our perception is, because it may be that everyone else is full of joy and delight at the same time as we are, but it may be what we can know more directly and with a a deeper sense of certainty is, oh, this is what it's like when the consciousness has this particular flavor to it, has this particular quality to it. And so contemplating How these conditions arise, well first of all contemplating that these conditions arise and pass. That sometimes it's like this, and sometimes it's like that. Sometimes the mind is concentrated and still. Other times it's fragmented and flaky. Not setting up a hierarchy too much. While we might of course be orienting towards the cultivation of calm, or the cultivation of openness... But that is most profoundly supported by our simply knowing things as they are. As we are cultivating, as we are supporting, as we are developing the wholesome and beneficial qualities. So noticing the arising of states of mind and the vanishing, the coming and the going. As we do this we can start to see that the states of mind are not something we need to take personally. They're not some definitive statement about who we are. Nor do they provide a reliable basis for interpreting experience. We need to acknowledge them, and yet being able to see them, not identify with them. Then we can start to see more clearly what's happening and how we easily become caught or entangled in the state of mind. And when that happens, we find ourselves drawn into the experience that we may more, in a familiar mode, refer to as as emotion. And it's really a connected theme to the state of the heart-mind. When we call it heart-mind, it makes it more obvious that it's a connected theme. Because we think of emotional experiences as experience of the heart. So the Buddha didn't actually use a word that corresponds directly with emotion. In fact, it's not apparent that there was such a word at the time of the Buddha. And that's a little surprising. We might think, My gosh, you know, isn't this such a phenomenal and significant part of our experience, and he didn't have a word for it. He didn't talk about it, it seems, directly. That's a little strange. Um, So for us, and certainly in Western culture, the emotional life has such a, a large role, it would seem. And it's something very powerful. It drives. It can seem to drive our lives. It certainly can seem to drive our world in so many ways. And it can feel very sticky. It can be something that it seems we struggle to find balance in relationship to, in practice. That we get pulled in by or repelled by different emotional experiences. So although the life of the heart, the feeling life, the emotional life is something which arises and passes, which changes, often we get caught in it, we identify with it and there's a a way in which we start to feel that it can be an opponent or a, a problem in practice, that emotional life is somehow something that we're trying to sort out here and that Even the the image can appear or the view can be taken. It's not uncommon that somehow, if we're doing, you know, if our practice is really together, if we've got some depth, some maturity, then really the emotional life should flatline. Just, or maybe it's all right if it's just a little bit sort of happy, but it's not supposed to be delirious and it's certainly not supposed to be miserable and it certainly shouldn't be confused or angry or reactive. That all that stuff is somehow part of the world of the, you know, the mundane sort of non practitioner. I say it in a slightly exaggerated form to what we might actually think and yet it's easy for this to be an attitude we hold at some level and I think it's one worth questioning or at least contemplating. It's certainly the case that in the practice of samatha and equally in the practice of vipassana, of calm, of insight, we can at times notice the emotional life's quieting or steadying. And it's easy to imagine that in that quietening, somehow this is what evidences some development or deepening of practice and that an an absence of quietening, like in fact an aliveness or a fullness or a, a lot of, Emotional energy is somehow evidence of of practice not going well, something not so spiritual, we might think. Now, the degree to which we get identified with our emotional life is clearly an issue to be addressed and attended to, and I'll, I'll speak a bit more about that. But it's also an equal risk for us, and perhaps in the West maybe more of a risk, That we can take the view that somehow the emotional life is a problem to be removed or avoided in practice. And it's quite easy to somehow think, I need to find a way around this. So, as to see it as not quite legitimate, not quite of equal value, as Any other experience. This can lead to a sort of the rather amusing, in one sense, and another level, kind of tragic cultures that sometimes develop in in, in sort of Buddhist contexts where monks in Thailand are are sort of really looked down on if they smile. You're not supposed to be happy, you know, you're supposed to be equanimous. And so, not all monks, but for many it's sort of like you get the sense of they, they sort of hold their face flat and straight. I'm talking mostly here about the, um, the, the actual Thai monks. I'm not sure that's necessarily the case for Western monks in Thailand. And, um, you know, the sort of the more serious and senior the monk, the more grim and emotionless they appear. And it's a bit scary sometimes to see them. And you kind of wonder, well, gosh, that doesn't look like a very enjoyable form of, sort of freedom that they're practicing or exploring. Not that freedom has to involve a lot of, sort of delirious laughter, although it can. And that's really the key piece there. Freedom can include anything and everything. That's why it's freedom. And so any idea that we make that excludes some field of our experience is ultimately limiting on the vision of practice. And we can have this kind of thing start to happen which has been termed spiritual bypassing, which is in the vision of our spirituality, we bypass an element of our experience. We say, that's not what it's about. That's really something else. That's only in the world of delusion and in the the world of, of wisdom and compassion. We don't do that. It's not for any good at it. So another attitude might simply be, and I think this is clearly what the Buddha himself is suggesting in the teaching, when it's here, notice it. When it's not, notice that. And be aware of how we're affected by the experience of what goes on. So we become interested to understand what's happening here. When we experience emotional life, it's like a wave. It's like a movement of energy that can be at times really powerful. Sometimes it arises in practice not as in any way a confirmation that our practice isn't going well or that we've lost it and that real calm, quiet, peaceful experience we were having has somehow been blown. You know, I've blown it and here am I full of rage or grief or confusion or some other form of emotional experience, often what happens is the very quieting, the very opening, the sensitivity that we're developing that is naturally deepening through the practice, it's that very, those very qualities that allow, that create the supportive conditions for some aspect of our experience that may be more challenging, more turbulent, more painful. Is Those very conditions allow that experience to come through and to be explored, to be met, to be understood more fully and deeply with the potential that the emotional life in and of itself does not need to or have to create suffering or limitation in our life. And that's what we're concerned with. Not somehow flatlining our emotional life, but freeing the heart and mind, from the suffering that arises when we become entangled with, identified with, or in resistance to the movement of emotion. And so if we look at this, we see, and we're not being encouraged to push it away, nor to take hold of it, to not identify with the emotion as being who we are, but just another phenomena. They sometimes seem so strongly defining of our sense of who we are. And that's why they're tricky and challenging to work with. That's why we encourage some real degree of stepping out, putting down, letting go with regard to that energy. Particularly as and over the days of getting established in practice, settling in for a retreat. Useful to just give it a bit of space, but that doesn't mean reject it or avoid it. As we become more steady, as the heart, mind, body stills and has more of a a capacity to meet and to hold experience that may be more charged or intense, we can turn towards the experience of what we call emotion and begin to investigate what's happening here. What's going on? If I come to this without... Fear of it, or without any sense that this is somehow definitive of who or what I am. So, what we notice when we do that is that first of all, we can recognize that they divide up quite commonly into those emotional states or experiences which are pleasurable, enjoyable, delightful to us, which we like which we desire, which we wish for, and how there can be a grasping towards them, how a wish for them to continue to stay when we're feeling delighted or blissed out or joyful, and how much the sense of give me, give me, give me, or got it, got it, got it, starts to arise in us if we're not aware of what's going on and seeing, oh, it's pleasant. Mind states can be pleasurable. Emotion can be pleasurable. We tend to think of that as good, but actually it's just pleasurable. And separating out the way we use those little words to say, ah, so much of what we call good is just pleasant. So when it's pleasant, enjoy it. But when it changes or fades, we learn to let it go. Seeing likewise that many emotions we fear. And it's really good to be honest with ourselves. We can be scared of strong emotion. And often because our early experiences will have involved being overwhelmed by intensity of emotion when we don't have the capacity to handle it when we're very young and because we've probably probably been given very clear and strong messages through our life from early on, probably right until our you know current life that says certain emotions are not acceptable. Certain emotions are not allowed and you shouldn't be having it. So at one level they can be scary or threatening and another level they can frighten us with the sense of if I have this then somehow I'm going to be rejected or somehow it's going to mean that there's something wrong with me. And so we feel threatened not so much by the emotion but by the identity that has become associated with it and it's an identity that we don't wish to be located in of being bad or wrong or different. And so just acknowledging this sense of challenge that might arise with regard to emotional life, not regarding that as something that's wrong either, if we're afraid of a certain emotion. Oh, well, that's another emotional response. There's another process going on. Being able to separate out what's going on here. What's actually happening? Because what we call emotion is a composite experience. that's why the Buddha didn't have a word for it. The Buddha had words for all the pieces. And he talked about them in the parts that they manifest as, that emotion manifests as, without necessarily putting it all together and saying, this is a something. The Buddha was very much in the business of, in a way, taking apart our ideas of somethings that are actually made up of lots of parts. And seeing through that way in which we gloss over the different components of an experience. And of course the fundamental glossing over being the components of our sense of self. But this is a a part of that. So what we notice if we just reflect on it is that emotions have as the defining feature a state of mind which is what I was speaking about earlier, this particular flavor in the consciousness. Whenever there's emotion, there's a flavor in the consciousness. An absence of emotion is an absence of flavor in the consciousness. Now the flavor can be as, you know, there are so many flavors. There can be delight, joy, happiness. There can be sadness, fear, anger. There can be craving, greed, desire aversion, resistance, irritation. There can be confusion. All of these, there can be rage, jealousy. All of these, so many different things that we know, that we perhaps recognize some of them as strong within us or challenging for ourselves. To be able to see that there's a certain color in the consciousness. But mostly, when we're not, Reflecting on the experience when we're drawn into it, what happens is we get drawn into the next element of the emotion, or what we call emotion, which is the thoughts that arise together with the state of mind. There's the second. There's a state of mind, and then there's the thoughts, and the thought patterns are very particular to the state of mind, and they tend to reflect it. And reinforce it by telling the story of how we came to be like this, how this experience came to be, how it is I came to be happy. Oh, it was because of all these lovely things that happened in my life. And if we don't see that, what we will start doing very quickly is we see, oh, this is what brought happiness. Okay, because happiness for many of us is something we desire, we enjoy, we grasp hold of. So then there's the, okay, so how will I repeat all those things that caused me this happiness or brought me happiness in the past in order to have happiness in the future? So the mind moves out of the experience of a state of mind that's happy to a story about how I got here and how I will continue it or reproduce it in the future. And that story, that thinking... Starts to spin us, starts to disconnect us. And in that, the identity of me, I'm happy, this is how I got happy, this is how I'm going to try and keep happy, that's where we get lost. That's where we have to learn to see what's going on and put it down. The story that takes us to past and future is not the state of mind, it's about the state of mind. But it's about the state of mind driven by craving, grasping, attachment. Or, in the case of a painful or difficult one, we might be feeling a sense of grief. And we start thinking about all the things in our life that have brought grief. There may be deeply grievous things we've encountered, certainly. And that's how it is for us. But then often in that we start to wonder how long, how much, shouldn't I have done with this grief by now? You know, how could I make sure I never encounter such grief again? Well, again, we go to the past, we go to the future with the story of our grief. And, of course, grief is painful. It's important that we allow ourselves to meet that experience but not identifying with the story that seems to be generated by it, that seems to arise together with it. And with any particularly any strong emotion, but any emotional experience. The third element that's also there is that our bodily experience, the sensations in the body, will be reflecting or expressing at an energetic level or sensational level what's going on. So if we're feeling angry, there might be heat or contraction or tightness or something painful or uncomfortable in our body somewhere. If we're feeling delight, there may be a sense of sort of Tingling or sort of flowing or sort of something that's that's quite enjoyable that can be felt in the body for feeling really sad maybe a sense of heaviness or a or a sort of a a watery moist density or anything in fact that's just those aren 't definitive descriptions of how one might experience those things, just examples and if we bring our attention into the body. And feel what that's like. Allow yourself to contact, be touched by, without taking hold of or pushing away the experience in the body. It's incredibly helpful for allowing us to encounter, without needing to push away, nor getting lost in the emotion. To encounter the emotional life, to see. State of mind, ah, story, okay, yeah. But what's happening here and now, this body, and it feels like this. And it can be useful to ask ourselves, you know, where do I feel it? What's it like? Can I make space? Can I make room for this experience? Can I allow it to be here? Very easily there's a subtle agenda we bring that wants it to go away if it's uncomfortable or scary to us or that wants it to somehow stay, if we're enjoying it, if we find it delightful or uplifting. And seeing if we can let those agendas go, just to know the experience as it is. State of mind, pattern of thinking, sensations in the body. When emotion is strong or sticky, it can often feel that the breath is too insubstantial to provide us a good anchor in relationship to the pull and the strong pull that emotional life can can generate in the mind and so what can be helpful if that's the case is in bringing the attention to the body noticing where the sensations in the body are they will generally be more If the emotion is strong, they will be of a corresponding strength or intensity. And as such, they provide a really useful place to connect with the body in the present moment. Because there's something more tangible there to get hold of. And so, just noticing what that's like. One could Hear a sound and start to wonder, is that a woodpecker? And then start to feel delighted. And then think, Oh, what's that like? Ah, oh, okay, yeah, it's just a nice feeling in here. Okay. Of course, maybe it's not a woodpecker, and then one starts to get wondering, Well, what is it? and could start to feel a bit confused, and that feels not quite so good. Ah, oh, okay, that's confusion. Feels like this. Huh, okay. Here we are. So To be able to meet and to move, to make space for, to move with the emotion, not carried away with it, but in a sense stay fluid in relationship to it rather than taking a position in relationship to it. When we take a position that says, This is me, and I am this, I am happy, I am angry, I am sad, we can feel the suffering and the limitation in that. And yet, if we take a position that says, It's not me. I'm not angry. No, 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 no. Um, And somehow withdraw from it, there's also suffering and limitation in that. So more useful is just to say, oh, look, here is anger. Here is joy. Here is grief. Or this is anger. This is joy. This is grief. This is what it's like. Wow, okay. So it's much more from a sense of interest and openness than in any way being defined by the inclusion or the exclusion of that experience, I am this or I am not this, are both positions of attachment and ultimately limitation and suffering. It's just this, without needing to take a position in terms of self. It's just this. It's just this. And maybe we wouldn't use just. It's like, it's this. So not in any way using just as a diminutive there, but just... It's just more much simply. It's simply this. That's what it is. Knowing that. So if it's strong, if it's intense, sometimes rather than focusing on where it feels most intense, if that feels overwhelming or not possible, we can just back off a little bit and give it some space. So we might notice the intensity in the body in a certain location, and we might notice that that intensity is it changes as we move our attention a little bit away from it. Without leaving, we can just find what I describe or find sort of understand as as what's a workable distance or a workable degree of closeness. It's like if something's really hot and you grab it and you get burned, you go ah, and you move away. Sometimes a strong experience, it's like that for us. We can't just. Go right into the center of it. We need to just come up close and see where can I be and how can I be in contact with this experience so I'm in touch with it, but I'm not generating an overwhelming degree of reactivity. So, just like with physical pain, sometimes we can go right into the center of it, really feel the fire or the pressure or whatever it is that's there. And other times it's more useful just to be in the vicinity of it and feel it more gently. Likewise, with the emotional life coming into the body, feeling where, how you experience it, and just sensing how much room does this need? What if I were to just allow it to be here and sort of like stay close, as if instead of grabbing something hot, we just bring our hands up close enough to feel the warmth, so we know, oh, it's warm here. It's like, yeah, hey, this is this is frustration, or this is. This is envy. Okay, this is envy and it feels like this. Okay, yeah. But just enough so we know it. And then as we feel okay, as we might relax with it, as the pressure or the fear might start to soften around it, then we can go closer. But not feeling like we have some agenda that I have to make something happen here. It's much more to see what's possible. And that's, of course... The fundamental guideline with practice in any form, seeing what's possible here. How fully can I be present with this? And so far as possible, letting go of our ideas and our agendas for our emotional life to understand that it is a natural part of human experience and that we can learn to see it move naturally as it does. There's a, a section in the uh, Prophet by Khalil Gibran where he speaks of a skillful understanding of the emotional life and I find it very, very useful, very helpful. So he, he says, If you could keep your mind in wonder, if you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracle of your life, Your sorrow would not seem less wondrous than your joy. And you would accept the seasons of your heart even as you have always accepted the seasons that pass over your lands. And you would watch with serenity through the winter of your grief. So there's something about The miraculousness of our life, the fact that we're here at all, the fact that life shows up in this form with these feelings, there's something remarkable in that. If we can just let ourselves remember that this life isn't to be taken for granted. Its very aliveness is something inconceivable that can help loosen up the sense of our idea of how it's supposed to be. Because that's premised on some conceiving that we know what it is in the first place. If we really don't know how it happens, how it came to happen at all, then we can't be so confident or certain about our views and how it should be. And when that starts to soften or drop, it's more like, oh, this is what happens. This is the life of the heart. And the phrase, the seasons of the heart, I find so useful. It's like, of course we'd all like to live in perpetual summer. We'd like it to be sunny, we'd like it to be warm, the full bloom of the trees and the flowers. And yet, clearly, we see the land. It can't be so. That Summer has to die back into autumn and to fall. And that beauty and luxury fades. And through fall, there's maybe the sense of loss, of ending, and we start to think about the coming of winter with some trepidation. And yes, sometimes we encounter the winter of the heart, when things feel harsh or arid or frozen, or it's like the the life has been pared back, and there's nothing green and soft. And that can be hard to encounter. And yet from that very condition, if we look at the land around us, the seasons that have been coming unstoppably, we see that that very winter is the foundation, is the condition in which the new life springs forth. And tender shoots of green push their way out of the earth, becoming leaves, becoming flowers. And spring gathers that momentum of life and comes forth again into the fullness of summer. So too the life of our heart. And just as winter inevitably gives way to spring, so too those places in the heart that are hard to encounter in their own time, according to the unstoppable nature of things, they too change. They too unfold into the next thing. And just as summer cannot be forever, so too winter will not be forever. Seeing the changing nature, the transience, the flow of life in this field of our experience that's so important to us, that seems so central. Understanding that that's its nature, even the word emotion, it's moving it's something that moves. So starting to notice, particularly when it's challenging or difficult, those moments when it's there, but equally the moments of absence. Or even the moments when it's less intense. And even that, oh, it's different. It changes. Just as it has arisen, so too it must pass. As all things which arise arise also pass away. Seeing that starts to puncture the solidity. Part of the story that runs with emotions when we're identified with them is not just it's like this, but very easily it's always like this. And it always was, and it always will be. And that's when we're lost inside the distorted Perspective that the mind state creates and we're believing it to be ultimately true when in fact it's simply when I'm wearing pink glasses yes, everything is pink for sure or grey, dark glasses, everything is grey and dark but when they're not there it's not pink or grey anymore it's just as it is And starting to know, as we would all do if we put on a pair of bright pinkly-coloured sunglasses, we'd know that the world wasn't suddenly pink. We'd understand that. We wouldn't be fooled. So too, we can learn to see through the mind state without having to somehow remove it in order to not be bound by it. And then as we release the grasping with regard to mind state, with regard to emotion, we release the identification with it. It has no capacity to create suffering. It's simply experience unfolding. It's simply life moving, seasons flowing one into the next. And it does just happen. It's just what's here. It's not, I am, or this is me. It's just life. It's just life, revealing, expressing, manifesting, unstoppably as it does. And from that understanding, from that perspective, we can take care with each experience. Find what's appropriate. At times, turn towards the state of mind, the emotional life, when needed, to give attention to it and space. And at other times, seeing that that's not needed in this moment, we can simply acknowledge what's there, put it down. Maybe turning our attention back to the chosen object of our attention or the chosen direction of development of our practice. The Buddha once said, Friends, this heart-mind is radiant, luminous, brightly shining. It is clouded by attachments which visit it. The untrained, ignorant persons do not understand this. And so for them, there is no development of heart and mind. He said, friends, this heart-mind is radiant, luminous, brightly shining. It is free from the attachments which visit it. This the wise understand, and for them there is development of the heart and mind. And so continuing to practice, simply being present. Let's sit together for a minute or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.